0: Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Christ Community, the home of Leviticus. (laughs) You're probably thinking, yes, he's really going to do this today. Um, But yes, we are. Leviticus is, uh, you know, kind of the Rodney Dangerfield book of the Old Testament. I mean, let's face it. Um, But word's getting out, you know, that uh, Christ Community really dives in deep. Like, we're the church of Leviticus, Um, I heard this week one of uh, the members of our congregation was uh, sitting in Starbucks, which a lot of us hang out, right? Um, And uh, she was reading through open here, and she was reading Leviticus. So imagine a person comes up, looks over her shoulder, and says, I see you're reading Leviticus. I'm impressed that he even knew Leviticus. Um, And uh, she says, yes. She says, I am. He says, you must go to Christ Community Church. I have no idea where that came from. You know, if uh, we wanted to skyrocket the megachurch status, Leviticus is probably not where we would end up. My goodness, the word is out. Uh, And yes, we are going to do a message on Leviticus. Um, And I'm very excited you're here. I hope you are here uh, and not in sheer panic mode because there is much to hear. Well, again, welcome to uh, the Leewood Campus and the Christ community. We are diving in through our Old Testament journey today, and um, if you read the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament starts with Genesis and then Exodus and then Leviticus. G- Genesis is, is intriguing. Exodus is thrilling and amazing, all the twists and turns, and then Leviticus. Um, Leviticus is hard. It's uh, hard to grasp sometimes, but I want to suggest to you its message is very important in the big story. Eugene Peterson, who uh, wrote the message or paraphrased uh, message, uh, introduces Leviticus brilliantly. Uh, Let me start here. This is what he says. He says, one of the stubborn enduring habits of the human race is to insist on domesticating God. We are determined to tame him. We try to reduce God to a size that conveniently fits our plans and ambitions and taste. But our scriptures are even more stubborn in telling us that we can't do it. God cannot be fit into our plans. We must fit into his. Perhaps the reason most of us, including me, are shy to sort of enter into Leviticus is it reminds us that God is anything but safe, as C.S. Lewis reminds us. That we cannot domesticate God into our own image or our own likeness. Maybe that's why Leviticus is a difficult thing for us because it points to another reality. But we're diving in. So if you brought a Bible, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Let's set the backdrop of this marvelous book. I said marvelous. Unlike Genesis, unlike Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus is not a story narrative filled with twists and turns. Rather, as God's people leave Egypt, enter the wilderness, as we heard last week, they find themselves at a rest stop, and Leviticus is like a large billboard, a large neon sign. Through the wilderness, God has repeated a threefold phrase to his people all the way through the book of Exodus. God says to them, I will be your God. You'll be my people, and notice, third, I will dwell in your midst. And the question Leviticus answers is what does it mean for a holy God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people? So, in this period of redemptive history, God tells Moses to build a space. Remember, they're traveling, it's not a temple, they're traveling, so it's a tent. He calls it a tabernacle that they will dwell, God's presence will dwell in. Here's a picture of it because as we enter into this text, there is a framework about 30 feet long. This is the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it's called in the Old Testament. And I want you to notice two big curtains in this holy place. The priests would enter the first section There's several little pieces there, the altar and so forth. And then you notice the second curtain, and behind it is the holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, where God's Shekinah glory dwelt. So I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through this text this morning. This is the contour of chapter 16. Now, what we understand as we enter into this wonderful book that we often don't even look at, is that there is this great chasm between a holy God who dwells amongst his people and sinful humanity. So how does God bridge this vast chasm? And here is where we see the formal sacrificial system and the priestly sacrifices that are a part of Leviticus that tend to be like the wall for a marathon runner for all of us, including pastors. But Leviticus, with all the details, has a big idea. And if you're taking notes, I want you to remember this. Leviticus has the idea, woman, through all these sacrifices and all these priestly details that God is holy, sin is serious, and forgiveness of sin is very costly. From the beginning of Leviticus to the end, God wants us to remember that to approach a holy God who hates sin, we have to approach him his way. Do you remember, and maybe they're still out there. I haven't seen them. But do you remember, I've been in different cities where I've seen these billboards. A couple years ago, they were everywhere. Remember those God billboards? Uh, They're all over. Here's a couple of them. Uh, And uh, one is, I really like, keep using my name in vain and I'll make rush hour longer. I think that's a good one. (laughs) Or God says, we need to talk. See, and this is the picture of Leviticus. Because if Leviticus, from beginning to end, is a large billboard, It is signed by God, and the phrase repeated all the way through Leviticus on this billboard he doesn't want us to miss is this, be holy for I am holy. Now, we enter into Leviticus 16 in the biggest day of the year in God's covenant people's history. Every year, the Day of Atonement, we know this from a war in modern-day Israel, Yom Kippur, The Day of Atonement was the biggest day in God's covenant people's year. Let's bring it to our cultural context. It might be like last Sunday. Whether you're a football fan or not, the biggest day of the year is Super Bowl. I mean, for the commercials or halftime entertainment, whatever all that is. But it's the biggest day of the year as we enter into Leviticus 16. It's a Super Bowl day, not of football, but of fasting and spiritual reflection. This is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is chapter 16. Now, as we look at chapter 16, I'm going to raise two questions that set the trajectory for our conversation that I hope will help us navigate through this and apply it to our lives. First, what is the Day of Atonement? And secondly, why is the Day of Atonement so important? What is it and why is it important? Now, Leviticus chapter 16 answers this question in two ways. What is the Day of Atonement? And first, it says the day of atonement is a day of sacrifice. Secondly, it is a day of the Sabbath or rest. So sacrifice and Sabbath are the trajectory of this chapter. This was a day for the high priest to really work. You know, pastors only work one day a week, right? And priests are really focused on working here. I want you to know the people are given a day off. The day of atonement was a day of rest. Work for the pastor or priest, like crazy, the high priest, Everybody else chilled out in their house for a while. That's the picture. Now, how does Leviticus chapter 16 open? This is important to understand because there's a refrain about the danger of dying in God's presence throughout the book. The way it begins is a sober warning to Aaron the high priest. Look at me at verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons... When they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place, that's that holy of holies, that inward compartment, right? Inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, picture where that is now, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, over that ark of the covenant. Now, what's going on here? Earlier in chapter 10 in Leviticus, we hear the tragic story of Aaron's two sons, who are high priests, who approach their role as priest not only with wrong method, but wrong heart motive. And it's a rather sober chapter because instantly God dispenses his judgment on Abu and Ahdab because they have approached a holy God in an unholy way. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And the picture we have in Genesis 10, how many love Raiders of the Lost Ark? (laughs) It's one of my favorite movies. And there's this gross scene. You remember when the bad Nazi dudes, they get the Ark of the Covenant, right, and they get it on this island, they open it up, you know, they're laughing, right, you know? And they're, whoa, and all of a sudden, God's power comes on them, and this guy that was this ugly dude with his thick glasses begins to literally melt in his sockets into a puddle of flesh. Remember that? That's exactly what's happening in Genesis, or Genesis, my brain, sorry, in Leviticus chapter 10. Instantly, God judges them for approaching his holy throne unholily. Can I use that word? This is the picture. Now, if you were their father, would you be freaking out? You would have grief for sure, but you're like, I ain't going to do that. I'm smart. I'm not going to get zapped like, you know, a speck. So Leviticus, Leviticus 16 is an assurance to Aaron the high priest that he can enter the holy place and do his work without being a puddle. That's the idea notice the language, so that he may not die. It is a very sober moment. He doesn't want to be next in line, so there's a holy dread casting its pallor over this chapter. Now, beginning in verse 3, God gives Aaron, the high priest, specific guidelines to carry out his priestly duties in dealing both with his sins and the sins of his people. You know, you wonder how pastors learn how to do funerals and, weddings and things like that to do it right. You know, I mean, you have to learn how to do that. Well, pastors have a little black book. (laughs) It's on CD now or DVD, but I have an older one, paper style. Um, But a pastor's service manual, and this is what Leviticus is. It is a billboard declaring God is holy, and it is a service manual, a liturgical manual for the priest. That's why there's so much detail. That's why if you were to pick up this, it would look like, if you don't like math, it would look like higher math to you. It is a priestly guide. And this is the picture, what God gives Aaron. It's a liturgy. Now, how do we understand this? The way to walk through Leviticus 16, I encourage you to read this chapter because it's wonderful. It truly is. The way to navigate through it is to see how it is arranged in threes with two couplets. In other words, the way this chapter develops for the high priest, this is Aaron going into the Holy Holies once a year to atone for the sins of himself and his people, there are three aspects to the liturgy, and this is how it goes. There are two separate offerings with very specific instructions about the offerings, two specific ones. Secondly, there are two sets of bathing instructions and wearing certain kinds of holy underwear kind of thing. That's the idea. Before the sacrifice and after. Verse 4, before, and verses 23 through 28, after. Purification before and after the sacrifice. And then, as you heard this morning, you have two unblemished goats. You know, what's the deal with the goats? One that's sacrificed and one that will be sent away. That's the flow. Two sacrifices, two sets of bathing purity instructions, and dealing with two goats. That's the flow of this chapter. See, Aaron wasn't probably the most brilliant. He needed basic instructions. So let's look at these. Verses 4 through 5, Aaron is instructed on special clothing. He is to wear and how he is to bathe as he engages his priestly service. This is a picture of the neededness for cleansing, cleansing before we enter God's holy place. Then if you have your Bible open, you notice in verses 7 all the way through verse 22, There is an emphasis, a strong emphasis, on the offering of the two goats. So what's the deal about the two goats, right? Well, think of it this way. One goat gets the short straw. (laughs) Another goat gets the long straw. You've done that. You know, you've had to choose, and you've done it through dice, or, you know, who gets the long straw? Who gets the short straw? Well, one goat gets the short straw. That means that goat's neck is slit. He's dead. He's sacrificed for the sins of the people. The other goat is the scapegoat, or we call him the scapegoat, who is sent away into the wilderness. Okay? In other words, both are a part, the symbolic picture of the forgiveness of sin. One is taken far away, never to return. So the two goats, you still with me? The two goats are symbolizing God's side of the atonement, the sacrifice, to cleanse the holy place. Because Aaron is sinful and to enter the holy place, the holy place itself has to be cleansed. That's the sacrificial sin offering. But also, God's people need to be forgiven. And the scapegoat, the sins, the iniquities are placed on his head, the symbol of the priest, and sent into the wilderness. So there's two aspects of the atonement to the holy place. Now, if you notice, the word atonement, you see that? It is repeated 16 times in this chapter. So as a thoughtful reader, you've got to say, what is this atonement idea? What does it mean? The idea of atonement in the biblical text has two aspects. We call this a semantic overlap in the word. Both are important, and both are part of this text. First, Atonement, to atone for something, meant a ransom or a substitution. Ransom is not like terrorist kind of thing. It is where you pay something that is a lesser amount than what you owe. It's like getting manslaughter when you deserve first-degree murder. Follow me? That's ransom. But then substitution is to take something you deserve and someone else takes the whole penalty for you. They are both woven into this idea of atonement. But not only that, there is a sense of cleansing and purity. That's where we get this word, Yom Kavor, to cover over with God's cleansing, to purify us from impurity and sin's defilement. And you will notice that throughout the Scriptures and the Old Testament, that the way we are ransomed, the way we are forgiven, the way we are cleansed, is that blood from a substitute must be shed for us that the shedding of blood is at the very heart of it. If you notice, and you read it this week, and if you've already read it, depending on what you're going through and open here, you will notice the detail around the blood. The sprinkling of the blood, the seven times, where it goes. Because the blood is the focus. And you go, ooh, right? What is going on in this context is there is a very visceral reality that a worshiper understood. Early in Leviticus, worshippers did their own sacrifice. But once a year, the priest did it for everyone, right? But the priest and the people understood this viscerally. Because when they brought their unblemished lamb and they didn't have lots of lambs or goats. It was a high price, okay? Like taking your car or your house and giving it to the church. I mean, it's a big cost. Their precious goat, they stuck their hand on the head of the goat as the priest slit its throat, And blood went everywhere. That's the picture. Most of us haven't gone through a meatpacking plant or something like that. We don't sacrifice animals today, thankfully, like that, right? But the worshipers, the high priests, understood something as blood splattered on them. That God was holy and sin was incredibly costly. And that forgiveness was very costly. Now, when we walk to our cultural context, this is many, many years ago, obviously, we have to raise the question, why does God call for blood sacrifice? You know, vampires are kind of in today with movies. Is God sort of a vampire God that's just interested in people's blood? Is he bloodthirsty? Our cultural location, we tend to think that. But as we read the whole Scriptures, we realize God is anything but bloodthirsty. God, The God we discover in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a tender-hearted, merciful, loving God. But He's also holy. You think that Aaron felt uncomfortable when a goat was sacrificed? Did he have to sacrifice a goat? You bet he felt uncomfortable. You think the worshipers felt uncomfortable when they brought their animal to the sacrificial system? They may be sacrificed for their sin. You bet they did. Blood made them feel uncomfortable, too. And blood makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? Why? Because sin ought to make us uncomfortable. And the holiness of God and the distance we have between a holy God and us ought to make us very uncomfortable. Sin is so serious, it requires such a costly remedy And the scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's how serious sin is. Your sin and my sin. See, the Day of Atonement was about a priestly sacrifice, but also a day of Sabbath. Rest for the people. Notice verses 29 through 34. We find here that this was meant to be a time of spiritual reflection, no work, rest, repentance, and spiritual cleansing, and fasting. Look at me at verses 30 through 31. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Notice that, from all your sins. It is a Sabbath or rest of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. That means not beating your body. It means repentance, fasting, and self-denial. It is a statue forever. This day of atonement, once a year, was a day reserved not for work, but for spiritual reflection, for personal examination of one's sin and the holiness of God. And all through the day, God's people cried out for a sacrifice that would bridge this vast chasm between their wretched sin and the holiness of God who dwelt with them. And Leviticus 16 calls us to be like him. That those who are called by a holy God are to be like him. This is what Leviticus 16 tells us. What is the atonement? What is the day of atonement? And why is it so important? Let me press into that a little bit more. Because sometimes isn't it, it's kind of distant to us. And I want to suggest to you why it's so important. And I'm going to suggest that Leviticus is a signpost. It's not the end. It is a signpost for something that is to come. And there are three signposts I want you to think with me about this morning. First of all, Leviticus is a signpost of the vast chasm between the holiness of God and your sin and my sin in our wretched depravity. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, who must have been a really fine person in many ways, encounters the holy God of Leviticus. Leviticus. And you remember the story in Isaiah 6. And he says, I saw the Lord on a throne with his robe filling the temple. And he describes the angelic beings who are praising the holy God. And they cry out in an antiphonal refrain, three words. Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. They do not say intelligent, intelligent, intelligent. They do not say smart, 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 or powerful, powerful, powerful. They say holy, holy, holy is God. And what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, Tozer says, and at the heart of that should be God's absolute otherness, purity, and holiness. And that sets us to thinking about our own Unholiness. Perhaps this is why Leviticus is so hard for us to peer into. Now, I don't do this very often because I do not want to be a pastor who is manipulative or overly transparent. But I have to tell you that this week, as I studied this text, I found myself moving from my computer to write you this message to get on my knees before a holy God. On my knees, I was reminded of the occupational hazard of pastors. We all have them, but pastors have a big one. And that is, we can look good on the outside. We can do lots of good things for people. And we can begin to think we're pretty good at heart level. Because the first priority of a shepherd, of a pastor, is to tend the sinfulness of his own heart and motive. And when we encounter on our knees the holiness of God, we are undone. Because in the depths of my heart, there is great wretchedness and depravity. Leviticus opens the door to God's holiness and this vast chasm we all have between a holy God. It forces us not to take our sin, our thoughts, our actions lightly. And pastors and priests are the first of sinners here. Isn't it interesting that the first thing Leviticus tells Aaron to do is to atone for his own sins? very easy for us to talk about the sins of our people when we encounter God in his word through the power of the spirit on our knees God's holiness undoes us undoes us completely our home is a wonderful refuge I love going home first of all because I get to see my bride But our home has a southern exposure with lots of beautiful windows, which I watch my birds. And uh, during the summer, when the sun is pretty high, you know, our windows always look pretty clean, don't they? I'm like, man, we clean these windows good. It also makes me feel good because I don't have to do more window cleaning. But then winter comes angle of the sun lowers on the horizon. And on a sunny, beautiful day, as I'm sitting there looking out my windows, I'm going, gosh, what dirty windows. I had no idea. I'm embarrassed if people saw that. Because when the bright light shines in your heart and mind of God's holiness, There's no question how dirty my windows and your windows are and how I so need, you need, God's cleansing and forgiveness. If we do not see the holiness of God, his righteousness, and the holy righteous wrath God places on human sin and rebellion, we will never see the brilliant jewel of God's gospel of grace. Never. Horatio Spafford in the book, or in his great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, captures this. He says these words, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate, my helpless estate, and has shed his own blood for my soul. Leviticus confronts us, you and me, with the great chasm that has to be bridged by someone. The second signpost is that someone. A bloodied cross in Jerusalem. The day of atonement looks ahead to the true Passover lamb, the sin offering. The sinless high priest who would have, not have to atone for his own sin but would willingly lay down down his life and shed his blood as an atoning substitutionary sacrifice for you and me. On the cross, Jesus says it's finished. In other words, in the Old Testament covenant, once a year, the high priest had to atone for the sins of his people, and it's not once a year anymore. It is once for all. May Jesus' name be praised. When people read Leviticus, they will say to me, well, Jesus is the better way. I read that in the New Testament. But why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't a loving God just sort of forgive me without dying? I mean, without shedding his innocent blood. And when I don't know the answers to these big questions, I turn to Pastor Tim Keller. In his reason for God, he says it well. He says this, why did Jesus have to die in order to forgive us? There was a debt to be paid. God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. Forgiveness is always a form of costly suffering. On the bloodstained cross, Jesus took your sin and my sin, and he satisfied the holy, righteous wrath of a holy and pure God. I call this the magnificent swap of grace. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, He, God the Father, made him God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Like that. So that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ and in Christ alone. John Stott in his brilliant work, The Cross of Christ, says this. He says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. That's idolatry. We're all that. While the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for us. Leviticus is a signpost of this great chasm, this bloodied cross, and a distinct community we have been called to. The name of Leviticus in the Hebrew text is not Leviticus. The title of the book is not Leviticus. It is a Hebrew word that means the called, or you are called. We are called, like in Leviticus, to be a distinct people. But what does that mean? What does it mean the church is to be a distinct community, a new covenant community? Let me give us three reminders in closing for us in application. First, y'all, we are to be holy, but we are not to be holier than thou. As followers of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, We are to live humble lives of obedience, of truth and grace, not self-righteousness and religious pride as we look down on somebody else. True holiness gets hijacked by religious legalism. When true Christian faith is corrupted to external religious rules and a thin veneer of false, nice church lady kind of piety. And the only way I or you can convince yourself that you're holier than somebody else is <laughs> to somehow deceive yourself or for me to deceive myself that my sin is not that bad I am a wretched sinner before a holy God and you are too we are desperate hell-bent rebellious sinners who have been saved by the grace of God alone through faith alone and his precious mercy we dare not boast in anything but the cross of Christ Our eyes must never look down on others who are made in God's image regardless of what they believe or how they behave. But look up to the cross where our Savior died for me and you. If we have a holier-than-thou attitude, it is not only perilously blind to our own sins, but we are blind to the glorious truths of the gospel of grace. Jesus did pay it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We are to be holy, a distinct people, but not an arrogant, prideful, self righteous, holier than thou people. Do you know how many people are turned off by the church and the pastor people because they smell it? Secondly, we are to be set apart, but not separate. Jesus reminds us that as apprentices of Jesus, we are a distinct people who are salt and light in a dark and broken world. To be set apart does not mean to be set apart from people, but set apart by God's costly grace in Christ. True holiness can be hijacked by religious legalism, but it can be equally hijacked by cheap grace. Cheap grace de-emphasizes God's holiness and it minimizes the necessity and urgency of growing in spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. Martyr German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke eloquently about this. He writes these words. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. True costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Bonhoeffer said it well when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. That's the call of the cross. So where are you this morning? Are you set apart to him? Is Jesus Christ both your Savior and your Lord? Are you all in? Are you all His? Do you know what Christ has done for you? He He did it all. He paid it all. How are you living? How are you responding? Does your sex life reflect obedience to Jesus out of grace? Your relationships with others, your affections, what your heart loves most. Does your submission to Christ and His Word change everything about you? Because following Jesus in His grace changes us, it changes marriage, it changes dating relationships, it radically changes our work, our priorities our attitude at school, our schoolwork. It changes our heart's affections. Following Jesus as his apprentice makes us a distinct people. And as a distinct people, we are salt and light. We are to show a broken and hurting world that God loves so desperately, what God is really like. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a dying world. And I think he's right. But what is the church? The true church is a distinct people who are God's megaphone to the world of God's costly grace and love. Let's be holy, but not holier than thou. Let's be distinct, but not separate. And let's be washed, and let's still wait for him. We have been washed, and we are still waiting. As a distinct people, we are on our way. We are on a pilgrimage. If you've embraced Christ, you've been cleansed from your sin, but you're still waiting. We're still waiting for the fullness of what we are created to be one day. With all of corrupted creation, we are crying out, right? We wait with great eagerness for the day when Jesus will return to this sin-ravaged planet. That day in Revelation when we, the bride of Christ, and all the world will be made new. He will make all things new. So friends, Leviticus not only needs respect, it needs to be read. It needs to be reflected on. Leviticus looks to the cross and reminds us that God is absolutely holy, that sin is serious, and forgiveness is costly. And it reminds us that God's grace is truly the most amazing reality of the universe. As we come this morning and prepare for the Holy Communion table, we want to prepare our hearts to approach a holy God in the way he should be approached. Through the blood of Christ, with reverence and awe. We remember the sacrifice Jesus has made for us. The Apostle Paul writes these words as he calls us to celebrate Holy Communion. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And then he says to all of us, before we come to the Holy Communion table, let us examine ourselves, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's bow our heads for a time of personal examination. Do we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Are we walking in obedience to him? John says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's be still before God as the Spirit speaks into the crevasses of our own life. Let's pray.